everybody. This is Cassandra. And I'm Carrie. And we're Too, Too Good, Good to, to Be, be true. true. And this week, we're continuing on with Dorothea Puente. Last week, we went over basically her background, where she was born, how she grew up. The first couple of times she's been in trouble, her many marriages, because the girl likes to get married. She definitely likes to get married. And now we're going to move into the stuff that really made her famous. In April of 1982, 53-year-old Ruth Monroe moved into the boarding house at 1426 F Street. And Ruth had met Dorothea at the Flame Club because Ruth had just started dating a new man named Harold. And Harold was taking her to all the fine dining establishments, all of the clubs and the bars and what? the roadhouses and stuff like that. And, and they were eating good and what meeting a generous people. Man. And, yeah, and Harold and Dorothea knew each other. And Dorothea was a cook at the Flame Club. So that is where she ends up hooking up with Ruth. And Ruth was a retiree. She had been a pharmacist. And then she retired, starts dating Harold, meets Dorothea, and they go into business as caterers. Yep. And so Ruth moves in with Dorothea and opens a joint bank account with her because they're doing business together. So that in itself, I don't think is very sus. Don't do that. <laughs> well, I mean, they're doing business together. I mean, so. they're doing business together, but like you just... I don't know. It it went a little fast. Yeah, but I mean, you, you do need a, a business account when you're running a business. To do business. So if they're both business partners, it would make sense for them to both be on it. So that, you know, I, I, I just feel like the the quickness of it all. Well, we don't really know like, exactly what the time frame is of their friendship. I, I don't know how long they were friends and how long they really talked about it. But also, like, think about it. You and I started this podcast on a whim. We like, did literally. Do I was just like, we should do a podcast, and you were like, that sounds fun. And sure, let's do that. But we didn't open a joint bank account yet. Yet, and as soon as Ruth moves in, her health already starts to decline, and she's walking around drinking this damn drink that Dorothea had made her. And her son, Bill, was like, this is weird because yeah. my mom doesn't drink. drink. And she's out there drinking, you know, nonstop cups of this creme de mint, which gross. Side note, that's like one of the first alcohols I ever tried because my grandfather gave me a taste. And? And it's all right, I guess. It was all right. It's minty, it's chocolatey. When you're a kid, you think, hey, that's pretty yummy. Now I don't know if that would be something I'd drink. <laughs> you know what I mean? My, my first sip of alcohol, I think that was like 11 and it was beer. Really? It was either 9 <laughs> or 11. It was one of those little, not quite, you know, you're in your preteen era. Yeah. And my mom and her husband used to go over to his cousin's place all the time. Okay. And they would, like, play board games and, like, card games and just get drunk and then half time end up spending the night because right. they didn't want to drive drunk home. And sometimes exactly. they'd stay sober and go home. But 
yeah, we 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 would just be over there all the time. And one night I was apparently just being like excessively annoying, and I was like, I wouldn't sip, I wouldn't sip, I would like to know what it tastes like. These, mama. And she was like, Oh my god, here, here. And I had one sip, and I was done. You're like, ew. <laughs> Beer is not. It doesn't taste. I just can't. Creme de menthe is just name alone is making. I don't know. I didn't think it was that bad. Making my mouth fuzzy. <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad. Gross. Have you read a mudslide? That shit's gross. Maybe, yes. I think I did try it and I was like, I'm not a fan of this. Gross. Anyway, we've gotten off topic and we we're we sorry. We definitely did. So, apologize. Aside from that, you know, Ruth is going around drinking this drink and she's starting to feel bad. Her health is declining. She's basically bedridden. At one point, she tells her family she's afraid she's going to die. And, and of course, her son's like, what the hell? Because yeah, she was fine. And her son is sitting there with her, and, and she's just crying. And, and he's just like, I don't know what to do. You know, she was right. she was fine. She was and now, fine. Now she's in tears, and she can't get out of bed. So she ends up dying soon after. Um, actually, like the very next day after Bill visited her and she was upset and in tears, the very next morning she passed away and she ends up dying of an overdose of codeine and acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, in case right. anybody doesn't know. And she... The, like, ridiculous amount. And really, she, she'd only been there because, well, her and Harold, they end up getting married and Harold gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. That's... And so this is this is why Ruth ends up moving in. She didn't. It's not just because they were in business together, but but Ruth's alone. Her, you know, kid or kids. I can't remember how many children she had. Yeah, I do remember that. You know, they're moved out. They're adults. When I watched that, and then Harold's dying. So yeah, she moves in with Dorothea, and her cause of death was left undetermined because. Good old Dorothea told the authorities that Ruth was depressed due to her husband's terminal, terminal illness and that she had that committed sense. suicide. But the thing is, no doctors had ever visited the house in all this time. She was so sick, no doctors were ever called. And her joint bank account with Dorothea gets empty. It gets emptied pretty quick. Yep. Immediately, Dorothea took all the money out. And... Ruth's family eventually puts two and two together and they decide to go to the police. But by the time they do that, Dorothy is already in prison. Yeah, apparently she had a trial that was upcoming from the previous. Whatever previous shit she was doing before, because can't keep track at this point. <laughs> so then she like, you know, bled that bank account dry, took off, you know. Yeah, and then, so the the detectives, they... And once again, from what I saw, it said she went to Mexico. Why does people keep going to Mexico? Yeah, well, I don't know what this lady's doing that's, like, making everybody think Mexico is a better choice than just severing ties. But anyway, the detectives go ahead and review the coroner's report at the family's request. And they said that while it does look suspicious, it still could have been a suicide... And that there just wasn't sufficient evidence to call Ruth's death a homicide. But the coroner's report showed a drug overdose. And Ruth still had some undissolved pills in her throat. Which is 
to me, I'm sorry, but that that, that should have like, been a red flag right there. Because that sounds like somebody was like shoving them in her mouth until them. the second that she passed out. Because if you are going to commit suicide by taking an overdose of pills, they're not still in your throat when you die. I, I mean, you would have to. She would have to be dead mid handful of pills for them to get stuck in her throat like that. And after all this goes down and is finished in 1988, her death does actually get reclassified as a homicide. They finally do say that. Wow. But a few weeks after Ruth dies, another person by the name of Malcolm McKenzie reports Dorothea for drugging and stealing from him. And this is what you were saying earlier. I can see this. She says that she gets... Sentenced to five years for drugging elderly people and stealing their benefit checks on August 19th of 1982. Yeah, so she she meets this Malcolm McKenzie at a bar. And, you know, she's she's a little haughty at this point. And she suggests going back to his apartment. And so he's like, okay. And on the way there, he starts to feel a little funky, a little out of it. Right. And by the time they get to his apartment, she gets him inside. He just collapses altogether. He didn't pass out, but whatever she gave him did paralyze him. So he's awake, right? And he can see everything he's awake, she's but, doing. But paralyzed. He, and how how terrifying. Like on because the show you, if you ever seen that. I, I've and if you had sleep paralysis, I was just gonna say I suffer from sleep paralysis now and then. It's not a regular thing, but it happens where my mind wakes before my body, body? does, and that, that's what sleep so paralysis is. Your mind, yeah, your mind yeah. wakes before your body, so you're fully kind Full of aware that you're aware, awake and that you, you shouldn't be able to move. move. And it can't. Yeah. And it's it's an absolutely terrifying, terrifying. experience. Sounds terrifying. I mean, in addition to that, most of the time people do have uh, hallucinations that accompany it, and a lot of times it's just yeah. like a figure, or sometimes it takes place that like somebody's like sitting on their chest. I'm pretty sure and that happened to Kaylin when she was smaller. It, it could have. And for me, it's always children. It's always two small children just out of my view in the corner over here discussing how they're going to stab me to death. Because yeah, are... she was like in bed talking nonsense, yeah, but it... like couldn't like. Yeah. It was crazy. So it's kind of like that. I mean, he's fully awake. He's alert. He can see what's going on, but he cannot get up and he can't stop her. And she stole items from around his apartment, and she stuffed everything into this little red suitcase that she finds. She, at one point, the brazen bitch, walks over and takes a ring right off his finger. While While he was laying there. Mm -hmm. I may have read this. And she gets questioned by the police because he reports it. And she says how she didn't steal anything, and she was instead given all of the items. And that's kind of usually what she says. Every time she right. gets caught with things, oh, I didn't steal oh, these. Oh, I didn't steal they them. Were they given. were given to me. You know, gifts or whatever. And as you said earlier, um, she was passing herself off as a nurse in order to defraud elderly and frail victims. And William Wood, the deputy district attorney, talks about that a little bit in the one documentary. Mm-hmm. And in addition to, like I said, she had props, like... She had the medical bag with different equipment and stethoscopes and stuff. And she also had fake diplomas that she'd carve around with her. 
Oh, yeah. To show how she was educated. And she would provide, she would prescribe, sorry, medication for victims. And then, like you said, and like she did to Malcolm McKenzie, she'd steal from them while they're drugged and unaware. You know, some of them she drugged until the point where they actually passed out. And then they'd wake up and their stuff is gone. Their stuff is gone. She's gone. And then in other cases, you know, they're paralyzed but not fully passed out. And they can see that she's just stealing from them. And on August 18th of 1982, that's where she's convicted of the charges. You said she gets convicted of three theft charges and she gets sentenced to five years in prison. And she doesn't actually serve the five years, though. And while she's in prison, she begins corresponding with Wait, a man e- named... Everson Gilman? Everson Gilmas, yeah. And he's a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon. And she, like I said, is released from prison. She only serves three, three years. five years. Yeah. And Everson is so... Enamored. With yeah, the that he picks her up he from prison. He and they progress very quickly in their relationship to immediate talks of marriage. And so they get engaged. And then in November of 1985, Dorothea hires a man named Ishmael Flores to install wood paneling in her apartment. Right. And in exchange for the labor and an extra $800. And so this was also around the time, like I was saying before, where they were telling her, they let her out, they were like, don't handle other people's social security checks. Mm-hmm. Don't work with the elderly anymore. You cannot have a boarding house again. Right. Clearly, she didn't listen. She didn't. <laughs> and so she gives Ishmael um, Everson's red 1984 pickup truck for installing the paneling and for another $800. And she tells him that it belonged to her boyfriend who is in Los Angeles and he no longer needed it. He sure did no longer need it. He really didn't. (laughs) And she asks Ishmael to then to build her a six foot by three foot by two foot box. That is the most disturbing disturbing part of that whole thing. It's like when you hear that, you're like, okay. And this guy wasn't like, you know what? Sounds awful. That sounds really. The fact that he. The fact that he built it too. And he didn't. I mean. I would be wondering, who who's it be built for? Is she about to kill me? <laughs> yeah, you'd be thinking, she going to put me in that box? Yeah, but she tells him it's to store books and other items. So he's right. like, all right, cool. So he builds the box. And she asks him to use his newly purchased truck to transport the box to storage, which he agrees to do, and she assists him. And on the way, she asks him to stop and dump the box. There was kind of an unofficial dumping site off Garden Highway in Sutter County where, like, apparently everybody just dumped their shit. Apparently everybody dumped their shit there. Yeah, so he doesn't think anything of it. He's just like, like, okay, cool. So they go and they drop the box off. Well, on January 1st in 1986, a fisherman is out for, you know, a little New Year's fishing, I guess. And he finds the box, which looks suspiciously like a coffin so he's like okay i'm gonna call cops so he reports it cops come they look inside the box and lo and behold there's a badly decomposed body of an elderly man imagine that imagine that and gee i wonder who it might be so dorothea 
She just goes ahead and continues to collect Everson's pension. And she writes letters to his family telling them that he just hadn't been in touch lately because he was sick. Right. Everybody in Dorothea's life is sick. His body remains unidentified for three years until December 1988. Finally, they're able to identify this is Everson that's been in this box this whole time. Right. Meanwhile... Dorothea continues to take in 40 new tenants at the boarding house. Ridiculous. And she was known for taking in the tough cases, so they liked her. Because she would take in people who were alcoholics. very well liked. Drug addicts. And, you know, ones that were abusive to previous landlords or housing situations. She would take them in, too. And she would collect all of their mail before they ever saw it. And she would pocket most of the money for her expenses (laughs) before giving the tenants a small stipend. During this time, she's visited by parole agents at least 15 times. times, But for some reason, none of them ever cited a violation, even though, as Cassandra said, she had been ordered to stay away. Not to do any of these things she she was doing. They said, stay away from the old people, okay? Leave them old people alone. alone. And stay away from their fucking checks. And she was like, you know what? I don't think I will. I don't think I will. In fact, I'm gonna keep doing it. And so she did. And eventually the neighbors become a little suspicious. And they start... As you would. Yeah, they start getting a little antsy around mid-1988 when Brenda Trujillo, a woman who had been in prison with Puente and had briefly lived at her 1426 F Street address, complained to police that Puente had drugged her and cashed her checks. Some of the... Imagine that, you know, shocker. Are we surprised? Not something that she was in jail for before or anything. Did you see that coming? No. Not at all. Not at all. Not a bit. Can't imagine. She (laughs) is so sweet. She would never. So there are some reports that say that Brenda told the police that Dorothea had buried tenants in the backyard. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Who knows? Some reports say it. Some don't. She may have. And they also begin to grow suspicious of Puente because she tells them that she adopted Adopted. (laughs) an unhoused alcoholic man referred to as Chief Chief. to serve as her handyman. And she had Chief dig in the basement, remove soil, remove garbage, take that all off the property. And then she has him put in a new concrete Concrete slab slab in the basement. And then he's gone. Yeah. And then he just poof, he disappeared. Yep. <laughs> and in nineteen eighty eight, same year, the police are visiting Dorothea because they're looking for a tenant, Alvaro missing. Bert Montoya, who was reported as missing by his social worker, Judy, Judy? Moise. Is that how you say it? Moise? Yes. I wasn't Moise. sure. And so Montoya, he was developmentally disabled. And he had been diagnosed as schizophrenic. And as we said before, yeah, that was kind of a blanket diagnosis back then. But seeing some of the video footage of him. I saw video footage, but he seemed like the sweetest sweetest guy ever also. Yes, by the way. And Judy was told by Dorothea that Bert's nephew had picked him up and he would no longer be living there. 
she ends up receiving a phone call from a man claiming to be named Don Anthony, who told her that Bert had gone back to be with his family. And she doesn't quite buy it. Judy of course. And she knows another tenant at the house whose name is John Sharp. Yes, so, so she was like, hey. She was like, hey, buddy. So she speaks to John, and she goes, is something wrong? And John says, yes, something's wrong here. She's been digging a lot of holes. Shocker. (laughs) Could you imagine, though? I can't even imagine, honestly. So she reports him missing. And responding officer Rick Ewing said that all the tenants interviewed had said that Bert had left that Sunday with a family member. But later on, he gets flagged down by none other than John Sharp who passes him a note that says, she wants me to lie to you. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, I, I saw, saw that, in the, I I saw that in the thing on TV, and I was like, oh, Whoa. my God. Wow. Um, so John Cabrera, he's the lead detective, and he says that Mr. Sharp says that Bert hasn't been seen in over three months. Three months. So on November 11th, 1988 officers returned to the house and they'd been told this time by judy moise to bring shovels so they begin digging in the garden and that's where they uncover the first body and this is the body of leona carpenter a 78 year old woman dorothea actually had a tenant that she allowed to live on the second floor of the house where her apartment was because like the layout of the house was dorothea lived on the second floor right and everybody lived Alice below her down so yeah. but john mccauley he got to live on the second floor and no one knows why, why? he was like special or whatever but he's allowed to live on the second floor and so the police go and they interview Dorothea about why they're there. And hey, we found a body in your yard. So what's up with that? And Dorothea says, well, she couldn't possibly drag a body to a grave because she's small. Right. So she says maybe Macaulay had murdered the tenants <laughs> in the backyard. Yeah, okay. Completely unbeknownst to her. Yeah. I, I was reading stuff and it was like they were saying that she reacted with genuine horror and let out an audible gas even though clearly she knew about she she, she knew a little more than she wanted to let on so officers come back the next day on november 12th and they're like oh i think we should probably keep digging because who knows what else we're gonna find right well eventually they find seven bodies seven more victims nope seven just in general oh yep seven in total buried on the property and during the investigation and this is truly truly bonkers to me during the investigation Dorothea is allowed to leave the property to get a cup of coffee from a nearby let me tell you when I watched the thing on TV that was the thing that blew my mind the most I mean they didn't see her as a suspect so they were very like here's the thing though at that point they did at this point they're starting to they're starting to piece this together though they didn't initially believe she's a suspect but after she gets questioned so i agree john Pereira starts to think she's a suspect 
but he he's the one that lets her go. But the thing is, now I fully understand him not arresting her because all of this evidence is circumstantial. Circumstantial at this they point. have no yeah. actual physical proof. I definitely so agree. I could see them not arresting her, but to go so far as to, to allow let her, her go to, to the coffee shop around the corner because she needs to calm down from you know the stress the stress of watching them dig in her yard so john himself walks her to the hotel sees her go inside and he's like all right i'm going back i'm gonna continue digging right well she doesn't get the coffee and hang out she decides fuck it i'm gonna i'm leaving out and (laughs) she flees to los angeles and the police are tipped off by her taxi driver because this taxi driver picks her up from the hotel. And he is like, you know, I don't think she's supposed to be leaving. I just wanted to let you know. These are the places that she had she to go. seen her or where she went. And so she ends up in L.A. And she meets another guy at another bar. It's another his name either. Charles. Charles Wilgus. Wilgus. So this is the guy at the bar, Charles Wilgus. And he recognizes Dorothy as the woman he saw on TV. And he goes to the police. Now, he's in L.A., so he goes to the LAPD. He's not going to, like, the Sacramento and stuff. So she just, was just literally, like, trying I wonder if she the was best gonna, she could, though. I think she was going to go to Mexico, too. I think Mexico was just, like— And Mexico the, is the place to yeah. be for all these people. Yeah, and then she was going to go to Mexico to flee all this. I've heard her going to Mexico makes sense. And, but, like, she's just, like, looking for sympathy with this guy. She's, like— telling him all these lies like oh my husband just died and she'd fallen on hard times using some name again calling herself donna johansson or something like that is what i read and that she was just basically just talking up all these things and literally you know who she is she moves quick she moves quick she was like oh let's let's you know have thanksgiving dinner together and you know just Making all these plans. And this guy's like, nah, 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 nah. no, he's like, nah, uh, yeah. I've I seen this bitch on TV. And Charles, <laughs> Charles is not buying it, thank God. And he goes to the cops. And LAPD officer Paul Von Letzo went with Wilgus to the hotel that she's staying at because she told him where she's staying. She told him exactly and where And he she knocks on the door and she answers. And he goes, are you Dorothea Puente? And she's just like, yeah. Yep. She knew she was done then. So they arrest her on November 17th. And during the investigation, just in case anybody was wondering, have people always been sick and awful? Yes. Yes, they have. During the investigation, people would come onto the property to take dirt from the garden so that they could sell it. Ew. Right? Others were selling merchandise like t-shirts and souvenirs. So, so gross. I just... I I was wondering if all this gross activity around true crime, like with the Dahmer stuff and the really what? out of line, inappropriate uh, glorification of serial killers, my I, I sensationalized. Yeah, well, people. I thought it kind of started during the internet era because we've got memes and everything. Right, funny. right. So I was like thinking that, but like, damn, even in like the seventies and eighties, people were being shitty. Exactly. Hey, here's some dirt from the freaking crazy lady's yard. So, um, Dorothea gets charged with nine murders. And we're going to read off their names 
of her victims because they deserve to have their names said. So we have Everson Gilmes, 77. Bruce Monroe, 61. Leona Carpenter, 78. Alberto Montoya, 51. Dorothy Miller, 64. Benjamin Fink, 55. James Gallup, 62. Vera Martin, 64. And Betty Palmer, 78. A low moment for them. Most of Dorothea's victims were drugged to the point of overdose. And then, after they passed, she'd wrap them in bed sheets and plastic lining and bury them in the backyard. And what's weird is I saw that when they were, when the medical examiner was looking at, you know, the scene, that everything was stitched. Like she sewed them in. Like sewed them in. I don't remember that. Yeah, it was weird. But that's freaky weird. Yeah, like she would sew them into like sheets or blankets or comforters or quilts or whatever and plastic lining or trash bags. And then just go bury them in the backyard. All of them had Delmain in their systems. And that's a central nervous system suppressant depressor, which is a mouthful. But yeah, that is a mouthful. <laughs> it's most often used by dentists for dental pain. And that makes sense. There are two people who prescribe Delmain in the house. Only two out of all these people. Dorothy Miller was prescribed it. And Dorothea. Dorothea, at the time, had access to about a thousand Delmaine tablets. Good lord. So, in court, her lawyers, Kevin Climo and Peter Blotton III, requested a change of venue, which was granted. And the trial gets moved to Monterey County, which is ironic because that's where we were last time with um, Deanna. Hubbard Wild. I did not remember that. Yeah. That that's the same county? Wow. So, so uh, yeah, trial began in October 1992. Yep, 1992. We start off in Monterey County. The prosecutor was John O'Mara, and he was the homicide supervisor in the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. John O'Mara calls over 130 witnesses, which that's insane. Mm -hmm. 130 witnesses and he tells the jury that Puente used sleeping pills to put her tenants to sleep then suffocated them and hired convicts to dig the burial holes in her yard which that might be it's so chief plausible chief, you know chief chief but, and then she had to do away with chief because then who knows if chief you know, just left he collected his money and left or she possible, did something I guess. to chief as well we don't know that's possible. But the jury deliberated for over a month, and finally they found her guilty of three murders. The jury was deadlocked 11 to 1 for conviction on all nine counts, and eventually the loan foldout agreed to conviction of two first-degree murder counts, including special circumstances, and one second-degree murder count. I find that to be unbelievable that she couldn't get convicted on all these murders. Yeah, but I, they were prosecuting they were, the entire case on nothing but circumstantial evidence. evidence. So I the guess fact that true. they did a good enough job of convincing even to get three, three of them and to get her locked away, at least they got that. And the, the judge, Michael Verga, declared a mistrial after the jury told him that further deliberations would not change their minds. Right. The defense for Dorothea called several witnesses, including 
one of her long lost daughters. And all of them testified that she was a caring and kind woman, even the long lost daughter, mm -hmm. and had helped them in their youth and guided them to successful careers. And some mental health experts argued that her abusive upbringing motivated her to help others, but that she had a so-called evil side, side brought yeah. on by the stress of caregiving. I don't believe any of that shit. And you know what? Sorry. Caregiver fatigue is a real thing. I do get that. But, but I think she had these intentions from the beginning don't to like kill people. Yeah. I don't know that she had the intention to kill them. But I think that she had the intention of stealing their money from the get-go. I think she had intention of killing them, because why would she be burying... Why would she be digging I mean, the that's holes? true. Why was she digging the holes? Why, Why'd she, she ask that guy to make that box? <laughs> I mean, it's it's much easier to kill somebody and keep collecting their checks than it is to keep them at the brink of death constantly, because then you really do have the to be a caregiver. Blows my mind. It's true. Then you would have to really be a caregiver. The thing that blows my mind from a banking perspective is how this woman get away with cashing so many people's checks and people weren't like, hey, that's a little weird. 80s, babe. I know. <laughs> I still am like, no. Now, you and I, and the second I say it, you know who's going to come to mind. But you and I have seen a teller try and cash a check for the very wrong person. I guess that's true. Yep. And she was going for it. So... We're still having that, and that was before I went where you were. So 2020, 2021, we're still having that, where we have screens where we can look right at your face on the computer to verify right, that to you verify are the correct are. person. It's still happening. So I can imagine it happened in the 80s where we didn't have that kind of stuff. Plus, there's, you know, we have people all the time where somebody signs a check over to the signs and they well, don't see, that's physically what I was have thinking. to I was like i get that like these people could assign their checks over her, but like when someone's cashing that many people's checks but maybe they were just like oh it's just dorothy or like, like that's what i was just running gonna say, a boarding again, house she was well known they, they, they probably thought she's giving them the money right. which clearly she was yeah, not she was well known well respected and very loved in this community and so they were probably like they she were, had everyone duped but <laughs> she was probably like their kitty you know when kitty would come in and we'd all be like there's that was probably Dorothea. They were probably. Yeah, I was picturing kids. that even. I was like, they're like, oh, it's just Dorothea again, cashing all her people's checks. Yeah, they're, you know, we have taken nothing of it. So, Omera, in his closing argument, he says, and I'm going to paraphrase here because he said a lot more he than He said this, a real long thing. But yeah. This is what he says Does anyone become responsible for their conduct in this world? These people were human beings. They had a right to live. They did not have a lot of possessions, no houses, no cars, only their social security checks and their lives. She took it all. Death is the only appropriate penalty. I agree. Yeah. Honestly. I'm, I'm not going to fight him on that. And She took people that were literally, they didn't have much to begin with. They she, they were at their lowest and she took everything took from them, including them, their lives. Them. Ruined their lives, took their lives, and and for what? If not even that much, I'm sorry. Social Security is not that much. I know. And her lawyers argued for life without parole. And they cite all the people who had testified that she'd helped. 
So she did end up receiving life without possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. And she's incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. Chowchilla, which I think is a fun that's name. A, that's a fun name. <laughs> Probably not the, the funnest to go to prison there. Don't I wouldn't want to go to prison there, but it's kind of a fun name. And while she's in there, she again strikes up a pen pal friendship because that's why what not? she does. And in 2004, her little pen pal, Shane Bugby, published a book he called Cooking with a Serial Killer. I know. I was like, and then she published a cookbook. I saw that. Like, I was how like, how gross can you be? Kidding me. How gross can you be to, to do this? And the book contained about 50 recipes that Puente had sent to him from her prison cell, as well as various pieces of art that she'd made. Hey, people did like her cooking, apparently. <laughs> she was known for her cooking. And finally, she dies from natural causes in prison on March 27th, 2011, at the age of 82. 82. So happy that she got to live such a nice long life. Yeah. The thing is that she maintained her innocence until the day she until died. Until the day she died. She insisting that all these people had died of natural causes. She, I'm sorry. She refused to acknowledge no. that she did this, which is disgusting i mean that's the very least that is the very least you can do i agree okay like if you did something like this at least don't opt to it you know what i mean like to to maintain your innocence to the bitter end is kind of and and let me tell you that's even more sick truly watching some of the people in the interviews like i'm not gonna lie i got emotional watching it watching this one lady's you know granddaughter talk about how she took her grandmother and she didn't do anything to deserve it. Right. I mean, yeah, she was an alcoholic, but being an alcoholic doesn't make doesn't you a bad person. You, it doesn't yeah. make you deserving of death. And then yeah. and the one that really got to me was Judy, Judy Moise, the social worker. The social worker. Um, Bert Montoya. She, well, she literally knew Dorothea and she, because uh, as we were told, we were saying she was very revered in the community, and she sent him there. Like, she, she sent him there yes. thinking this was a good place for him to be in. So I think she feels responsible, She does. She did. And she, she, did, she did get over it. And she, yeah. and she does talk about, you know, realizing that I remember that watching really her interview. Her but her interview, I'm telling you, it's really it emotional. It was heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Because she yeah. had such guilt. She's thinking, I was... She thought she was doing a good she thing. She thought, I'm doing the best thing I can possibly do for Bert. This is going to be amazing for him. And he ends up getting murdered. And she just felt so awesome. responsible for it. And if you watch it, I'm just... It's out a, of the tissues. It's, it's a tearjerker. Especially for that. Because sure. this lady... This lady was really what Dorothea was pretending to be this lady oh exactly was a social worker who wanted nothing but to help to people, help people and she loved these she people. loved these people and, and she this cared is about what happened and just it's just it's heartbreaking it's disgusting so then i was wondering after all this went down you know what happened to the house because a lot of times like yeah. with Dahmer's apartment complex yeah. the stuff just gets demolished it's rebuilt as something else or They'll rebuild the house. Right. Well, her house laid empty after she went to prison until it was sold at a public auction in 2011, the same year that she died. And it was purchased by Tom Williams and Barbara Holmes for 
$215,000, which is like Good Lord. nothing in 2011 yeah. for a Victorian home in for a Victorian Sacramento. Home. So, but they were fully aware of the history. Of the history that and came along. Barbara is quoted as saying, I thought we could put a fresh coat of paint on and make people forget. Babs, honey. No. <laughs> no, people ain't forgetting about that many bodies being in someone's yard. And the house was included in the 2013 home tour held by the Sacramento Old City Association. And it was also the subject of its own documentary, the 2015 short, The House is Innocent. Because there are a lot of people that wanted the house demolished. And so they had a doc. They're like, well, the house didn't kill these people. Right. Like, and it is like the house an little... older, like very Victorian, nice mm-hmm. style home. And it, it's it's actually it part... like historic. Yeah. It is. It is part of the historical area so that it can't be demolished. No matter how many people want it, no matter how many people call for it, no matter how many people are pissed off by its existence, they legally can't demolish it right and it was again opened to tours for just one day in conjunction with a local film festival showing of that 2015 doc the house is innocent and also in 2015 the ghost adventures crew investigated the house due to reports of hauntings i read about that yeah they say that the victims and puente and puente herself haunted haunted it it. i didn't read any reports on that they found anything so i think these people are just hoping for something that is not there and in april of 2020 the house and current owners were showcased in the quibi series murder house flip Good lord. So how I'm gonna have to check that out because like how many houses I mean, I guess it's not serial killer house flips, so it's probably not that much of a niche any house. Right. Somebody like how many murdered? people are buying these houses and being like, you know what? I'm gonna flip this murder house. Yeah, and then like, oh, let me reach out to this television show. I the thought that you would have to have to do that. I yeah. I don't know. I'm good. Yeah, me too. In June of 2020, the house was featured in a 10-minute documentary with 60-second docs about the purchase and renovation of the house by the current owners. So these people are just doing the most at marketing the shit out of this Um, house. This house, for real, making money off this. And then, like I said, um, it can't be demolished. It was built in 1890. It's it's considered a historical building, so it's, it's, it's there. And it's now a stop on popular ghost and crime tours in Sacramento. And I did see not that long ago. And by of that, I mean, at is. least within this year, an image of like there's a sign on the gate that basically says like the house is innocent. Like this house didn't commit the murders. Right. And that I'm fine with, you know, because that right. might deter some people who want to like throw eggs or, t- you or know, TP it or like vandalize you know, it in vandalizing. some other way. It might be yeah. just that last little bit of like reality check like this is just a freaking house this is a house and people live here so don't do that and the woman who did the horrible things she did so but the thing i take issue with is that they have a doll of dorothea that they put on the porch the people that own that house that's disturbing that's wrong that's very disrespectful so that i I don't like that not down with that the sign is fine i don't like that either should y'all want to be like dark tourists and go see the house it still stands it's there but be mindful of the fact that people live there and that you need to be respectful and that the house didn't do anything right and 
I know there's probably some people that feel the same way as I do, that having the doll up is very disrespectful, but yeah. we don't want to do anything about that because that then makes us criminals. So if you go and visit it, just be respectful, please. Yeah. And we decided that we, at the end of some of these episodes, we're going to talk about some of the things that we kind of saw as red flaggy and not in a way to victim blame not in no. a way to say oh my god how could these people not see this coming we're just gonna point out some things that should you see in current day in your own life where like with a loved one or whatever you know what to look for so this is a classic case of elder and disabled financial abuse exactly and over that in our second and we went episode over that in our second episode but some of the things you know are these relationships that are built very quickly like cassandra like i said, said exactly when something's moving way too fast like that and it doesn't matter if it's a friendship or a romantic or a romantic relationship something's off there yeah, if the relationship progresses that quickly to where you're like moving in super fast and you're opening a joint bank account, maybe take a step back and think. And think why about are it. they trying to rush this so fast? Right. You know, if if you're the one doing the rushing, you know, obviously you got to question your own motives. Are you trying I to guess do something, maybe. or are you just have some kind of attachment issue? But if somebody's doing it to right. you, to a family member, a friend, a neighbor, somebody you care about, you notice somebody's moving in awfully close awfully fast that's a red flag, that's a red flag we want sure. to watch out for that anybody that is taking control of somebody else's finances. financial situation oh yeah somebody who is a caregiver who is running a boarding house who is um just a cna or a family member who is just helping out nana like maybe your cousin that you haven't seen right. in like 20 years is suddenly really interested in your elderly relatives well-being and they want to move in and they're helping them and they're cashing their checks and they're doing all their banking why for what why from out of nowhere is this person so interested in helping this elderly person handle their entire and i life? get it when the people as we were saying are disabled and they can't make it to the bank themselves i get that but you just have to be careful and be a little leery of certain situations. You know what I mean? The The thing is, it's always best to err on the side of caution. Caution. Because I you know agree. what? At the end of the day, I would rather offend someone than bury someone. Exactly. So if you end up pissing somebody off because you were a little suspicious and they're upset with you and it was for nothing... Because they're not really doing anything wrong. That's really there's no harm whatever. There. There's okay? no harm there. You can you can mend that bridge. But if they really are doing something and you reported it, then that that's the best outcome. That's the best outcome from that. And I know even myself personally and, and the other people I work with, in situations like that where somebody is you know, a caregiver or CNA or whatever, like she was saying, and they are doing banking business for someone, we will even call them, check in with them, make sure we get the okay from them verbally before we would do anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, people, 
Because, I mean, you can ideally sign a check over to someone else. Right. But the thing is, your people at your bank, like, don't just view us as, oh, we're just cool, you know, bankers. We just care about the bank and we care about the money. That's not the case. That's not the case. No. We really care about our customers and we really want you to be safe. We're and, trying to. And trust me. Be safe and protect stuff you. like this to your bankers, they will take it seriously. Seriously, for sure. And they will do what they can to help you. A lot of times we develop relationships with these customers, too, and we love them and we don't want to see right. anything happen to them. And that's another good thing as a person on the outside, as a banker, is to know your customers exactly. and know their situation and know what things would be suspicious. Yeah, what's normal for them. What's, what's their normal behavior? You know, when they start suddenly withdrawing more money, you stop seeing them. Things are starting to look a little sketchy. You can always talk to them. You can try and give them a call. You can talk to your branch managers or, you know, your management at your bank. See if they can check in on some things. You can report elder financial abuse Abuse. if you see it. Yeah. So there's definitely things to look out for if you you have an elderly relative or neighbor or friends or, you know, a disabled person that you care about. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be super nosy. You don't need to be in all their business, but just kind of keep an eye on things. And if anything starts to rub you the wrong way, say something. Because like I said, at the end of the day, I'd rather offend somebody than bury somebody. Exactly. So we'll leave you with, as usual, if it seems Seems too too good good to be be true, true, it is. is.